I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth Admission. I got to participate in a really great event this week, and I wanted to let you in on it. It was the Chronicle's virtual election talk, Road to 2020, Women in Politics. Four really smart, cool women joined me. The Chronicle's Washington, D.C. reporter Tal Copin was my co-host, and we interviewed Congresswoman Katie Porter, Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, and Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge, which recruits and trains women to run for office. We chatted about Kamala Harris's historic run for vice president, the swearing-in of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and how the pandemic is driving so many women to drop out of the workforce. Listen to our chat now. And when you're done, we've got more to offer on the women in politics front. Check out Tall's new six-part podcast, Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris? Available wherever you listen to Fifth in Mission. Welcome. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight. And I'm Tall Copen, the Chronicle's correspondent based in Washington. And thank you for tuning in to Road to Election 2020, Women in Politics. And now we'd like to introduce you to our panelists. And I'm going to go ahead and read here. Just I want to make sure that I get <laughs> the, the due that all of these panelists are, are owed. But uh, we'll start with uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter, who was elected to represent Orange County in the House in 2018. And she's the first Democrat to win that seat. She's known for tough questioning on the House Financial Services Committee and is often armed with her famous whiteboard, which at least one of my friends texted me today to ask if she was in fact bringing tonight. And she's also the single mother of three kids. Ashanti Galar is the president of Emerge, which recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. She was recognized as one of She the People's 20 Women of Color in Politics, who will have a big impact on Tuesday's election. And last but not least, Buffy Wicks was elected in 2018 to represent Oakland in the State Assembly. She previously was an early hire in Barack Obama's 2008 campaign and also worked on his 2012 campaign and the 2016 campaign for Hillary Clinton. Welcome to all of our panelists. Thank you. All right, so let's dive right in. We wanted to start with uh, Kamala Harris's nomination to be vice president. And I wanted to start with Ashanti and ask, what does it mean to have a black woman running on a major party ticket? And of course, she's not only a black woman, she's also a barrier breaking Asian woman. What does it mean to have you know, a woman of color break that barrier of being on this major party ticket for the first time? It means a lot. When I get asked this question, I like to remind people that it was at the 1964 Democratic Convention that Fannie Lou Hamer fought to be sat as a delegate. So for us to see Senator Harris accept the nomination, even virtually, that is the manifestation of what Fannie Lou Hamer wanted for women. It's what she wanted for Black women. It's also important for representation to see Senator Harris go from district attorney to attorney general to senator to now the VP nominee with this, you can't tell little black girls that they can't do anything they want. You can't tell little Indian girls that they can't do anything that they want. But for women who are running for office, it shows them too that they can do it. They saw Senator Harris do it. But you do also see the sexism, the racism, the misogyny that she has to face. And we know that it exists for women when they run for office, but for Black, Brown, and Indigenous women, it's even harder. So to see her do it, it does give them that extra confidence that they can do it too, and that they have other women supporting them. 
I'm a part of a group called Women with Black Women. We started when Vice President Biden was considering all these great women to be his VP nominee. But what did we immediately see? Hardcore attacks on the Black women. And we got together and we said, no matter who he picks, you're not going to do this. You're not going to discredit this woman. You're not going to disqualify her. You're not going to do all the things that you did to Secretary Clinton. That up front, we are starting to push back. And you saw other coalitions start as well. Mm -hmm. So to be a week out and to just see her on the campaign trail, to hear how she's bringing people together, this is a very important moment for all women, but especially for women of color in politics, where this is a space where so many times we're still told that we don't belong. And Assemblymember Wicks, you, of course, worked on the campaigns for President Obama and um, Hillary Clinton, and now you're a female politician yourself. What are some of the things that you notice about the way candidates of color and women are treated in the campaigns um, that may be different than men or white candidates? Sure. Yeah. And I worked for President Obama for about six years and and for Hillary as well in 2016. And then as a candidate myself, you know, and I can speak from some of the things I witnessed uh, working on the president's campaign, you know, candidates of color and women uh, are held to a different standard, you know, and they have to walk a much tighter tightrope. Um, and it's it's there are implicit biases that take place in our society and they play out also in electoral politics. And we see that, you know, President Obama's patriotism was questioned all the time, you know, his name. I mean, all of these things around him and who he is as a person uh, was a constant challenge that we had to overcome. I remember he had to do the speech on patriotism. You know, you don't see white candidates out there having to do a speech on patriotism, you know, um, and you you look at women candidates, you know, and, and Hillary experienced this a lot. Is she warm enough, but she can't be too warm. She can't be too weak. She can't be too soft. She has to be friendly, but not too friendly. She has to be smart, you know, and you see that women candidates navigating that all the time. You know, in my experience, when I ran, you know, I ran my daughter daughter was five or six months old when I got into my race. Um, and I got questions like, well, how are you going to do this with a small child? You know, it's like, do male candidates get asked that question? You know, they have small children too, you know, and we figure it out. And yes, it's hard when you have small children. And obviously Katie can speak to this more than any of us, but we figure it out, you know? Um, and so there is a double standard, I think, that's out there that hopefully with people like Kamala out there, you know, pushing the envelope, people like Katie, people, you know, who are who are leading the path um, in, in a different kind of way, we can overcome this. And it, that can be the new normal, you know? And that was part of the reason I, I also ran to, I wanted my daughter to grow up seeing me run for office, you know, and now when I take her to speaking engagements, she just thinks this is what women do, you know, and if I go into a crowded room and I don't speak, she's like, why aren't you speaking, mommy? Like, that's what you do, you know? <laughs> so I think we also need to sort of model that behavior to change uh, the cultural norms around it. Yeah, it's that that iconic image of, you know, the podium with the, with the young girl uh, with her mom. I, I, I wish I could remember which politician that was. I think it was overseas, if I'm remembering correctly. But um, Congresswoman Porter, as, you know, Assemblywoman Wicks mentioned, obviously, your, your sort of famous mom in politics. We're going to, I think, get to that a, a lot more in depth later. But, you know, obviously weigh in on anything that's come up. But I wanted to ask you what the role you think Kamala Harris might Play as vice president would look like. Obviously, there's a lot of questions of you know progressiveness, which is something that you um, are very plugged in uh, to the conversation about where the Democratic Party should head. But I've also noticed personally on the campaign trail, it's a little interesting to see the dynamic 
to have the the only woman on the ticket be the sort of number two. And she she constantly has to talk about Biden's plans when we were so used to hearing Kamala Harris talk about her plans. Uh, so I'm curious, do you think that, that, you know, it would be a sort of powerless figurehead role or could she bring something different to it uh, if she were actually to take office with the with Joe Biden? I have every confidence that Kamala Harris would craft a very important role for herself. And I think, you know, Joe Biden was very plain about this during his selection process, that he wanted a partner, that he had valued the relationship that he had had with President Obama um, and wanted to have that kind of um, partnership. And I think it speaks volumes that he's picked a Black woman, um, a woman of color, to be his partner. Um, but, you know, you're right. Like, this is a shift from, um, you know, one to two, and that that it kind of comes with a certain kind of weight. But I think that Kamala is going to be, you know, she's been a trailblazer in so many ways um, and found her own issues and her own voice as DA, as Attorney General, as Senator. I am 100% confident that she'll keep doing that as Vice President. And I, you know, I think we're seeing, one of the things we're seeing with more women in office um, is a wider definition, more space for women to be different. And so there was this kind of early model of your husband died so you can have the seat, um, you know, looking back at history, or um, you worked your way up and you waited your turn and you were someone's chief of staff. And, um, you know, with the class of 2018, we elected so many different kinds of women, the first native women, the first lesbian mothers, um, you know, first black women to represent many, many, many states. And so I think the definition of what does it mean to be a woman in politics is a lot bigger than it used to be and gives more freedom for someone like Kamala to chart her own path. And could you all relate to her in the debate with Mike Pence when she kept saying, I'm speaking, I really liked that. <laughs> Yes. And she did it with the perfect amount of sort of class and sass <laughs> that you need. <laughs> and switching gears here, we wanted to touch on the um, very sad death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as well as yesterday's swearing in of her replacement, Amy Coney Barrett. Of course, this is on us as organizers of this panel, but um, all of you kind of represent the left side of the aisle. And during the confirmation hearings for um, Justice Barrett, Republicans said it was important for conservative women to see that there's a place for them in American politics too. And Nancy Pelosi has said she believes more women should be in the House, but it's Republicans' fault that they haven't done a better job recruiting them. And Kevin McCarthy has said they do put women out on the campaign trail, but Democrats keep running against them. So I wanted to have each of you speak to um, whether there's room in the feminist movement for conservative women and kind of how you see that playing out with the recent events around the Superior Court. So maybe um, Assembly Wicks, if you want to jump into that. Sure. I mean, I think what the feminist movement is about is about equity and equality and access to resources and ensuring that you know women have a level playing field. And I should also say women are not monolithic. I think women of color experience um, far greater challenges than white women. And we have to make sure we acknowledge that and recognize that and put a spotlight on that and, and address it. Um, but, you know, if, if there are conservative women who believe, you know, women had to have control of their own bodies, if there are conservative women who believe, you know, we need things like paid leave for all, and we need things like early childhood care, and we need these public policies that I believe level the playing field for women and create pay equity and all kinds of other things and economic opportunity, then by all means, great, you know, but let's talk about what feminism actually is. You know, and to me, it's it's those those public policies that actually create that level playing field for women to participate in. And I think that's what 
to drive the conversation is those those policies so that women can have a seat at the table. They can be a decision-making authority. They can be in the C-suite or they can be, you know, in the halls of Congress or positions of power in Wall Street, you name it. You know, those are the things that we want to be striving for as women and as feminists, in my opinion, of what feminism means. Congresswoman Porter, do you have any thoughts on the superior Supreme Court? Sorry. Um, you know, uh, I think debate. Yeah, I think, you know, what um, what Minority Leader McCarthy said is is really interesting to me that that they run women, but then we we run other people against them. Like, yes, welcome to politics. <laughs> Republican women, just like Democratic women, have to run and win. They have to earn the trust of their voters. They have to raise the resources. They have to communicate. They have to engage and inspire. Um, and there's there's, you know, I value some of my female colleagues on the other side of the aisle, and I have found that generally um, they are better partners. I think part of it is probably on me that I feel more comfortable approaching them, right? Um, and so there's there's a dynamic there that I think is important. Um, but you know, this idea that somehow it's enough to to just have some Republican women nominees and they're not they're not winning, and that somehow Democrats are holding them back is is nuts. With regard to Justice Ginsburg. You know, she was an amazing trailblazer. And I've thought a lot about that word trailblazer. We use it over and over and over again with her. But I, th I think the, the literal meaning of it is important to reflect on. Um, a trailblazer doesn't just um, go first. It's different than being the first. A trailblazer actually changes the path for those who follow, right? And so it's an easier walk. It's a different path. Um, and so I think there's a lot of ways in which Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg did that for all different kinds of women, not just for women in politics, but her fight for equal pay, her fight for um, you know, reproductive freedom, her fight for equality. All of these things are affecting millions of women and men's lives every single day. And Ashanti, do you want to take that question too? Is there an organization like Emerge for conservative women? I'm not aware of one, but maybe there is. So there are organizations that do invest in Republican women, but do they do it at the same depth as Emerge? They don't. And I agree with Speaker Pelosi on this. It's really on the Republican Party to build their tent for Republican women. At Emerge, we focus on recruitment and training 365 days a year. And we have great women who run, they're prepared to run. But an important piece here is that when you look at the Democratic Party and you ask voters, who do they feel is really representing Democratic values at this time? They say it's women. So that's a huge part of why we're seeing more Democratic women get elected because they are resonating not only with Democratic voters, but Republican voters, with independent voters. They need to make sure that they are doing the investment for their party the way that organizations like Emerge have done investments for the Democratic Party. It's really a question for them, and it's on them. We created this great tent of Democratic women. Yeah, we had to move some of the men out of the way, but they are right, but that's how it works, because that's how you have to create parity. So also, are they really serious about creating parity when it comes to women in elected office? And one of the other things that really struck me, and, and I've seen got, get a lot of sort of chewing over after the, the confirmation hearings with Amy Coney Barrett was, you know, she's, she's a mom of seven children. Her children were in the room. 
you know, everyone from California's own Senator Dianne Feinstein to Texas Senator Ted Cruz were asking her, was asking her questions about her children and complimenting their behavior. And it was really sort of heralded as a testament to who she is, that she has had the career that she's had while raising these children that she's had. You know, and and to be perfectly honest, I've seen some of the criticism of this that, you know, you're talking about a two-income household where they had childcare help. And by hailing her as a bastion of sort of working motherhood, you're sort of erasing how hard it can be for so many other people. And, um, you know, as, as a working mom myself, but obviously one who has, you know, a two income household, I, I sort of grapple with this question. I'm not sure how I feel. Is it, is it, you know, wonderful that we can celebrate moms in every sphere? Or was there something sort of, you know, unsettling about the way it was playing out in, in the hearing. And I'll sort of throw this one to Congresswoman Porter, obviously, you know, being a working mom is something that you deal with every single day. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, nobody's ever going to compliment me on how well behaved my children are. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, I, I think that there are just like we talked about there being room for more different kinds of women's experiences, that includes different kinds of women's experiences vis-a-vis having children or not, um, and how they raise those children, how they divide um, work and family with their partner or without a partner. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that I have found frustrating in Congress is when I raise issues, um, sometimes the response will be something like, well, but you know, Katie, like your situation's just really different. And It's true that I'm the only single parent of young children currently serving in the U.S. Congress, but the concerns that I'm raising about work family or about scheduling or about efficiency or even sometimes about a policy that has nothing to do with that, um, you know, there are millions and millions of single parents in this country, and I don't carry the water and cannot carry the water for all of their voices and their experiences. Um, And so I think, you know, Amy Coney Barrett represents her life experience as a mom, Um, but you know, an effort to kind of idealize any one person's motherhood or model of working family can be an effort to suppress or subjugate other people's. And so, you know, I think about how different my experience as a single mom would be if I were a black woman. Um, you know, different kinds of stereotypes, different kinds of attitudes about single parenting. Um, if I had never been married and had my children versus ending a marriage um, after having children. And so, you know, I think we have to, it's okay for her to be her kind of mom, but that doesn't mean that, that, that we want to allow her to, to um, judge or control how other people decide and, and lead their lives as mothers. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Nishanti, what kind of mother tropes do you see? You know, you're recruiting a wide range of candidates and and helping them run for office. I mean, how do you see the sort of mother trope playing out uh, with those alums of your organization? We see it all the time from the shaming, where are your kids at? Why are you knocking these doors back when we could knock doors? What does your husband think about this? Oh, are you working and doing this? How do you have time for your family? Again, questions that men are never asked. 
But when it comes to single mothers in particular, we do hear all the time, well, they can't run for office. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, you know, they just can't. And I'm like, but why? And it goes back to just stereotypes. Again, of if we do have women in office, they have to be the Amy Coney Barrett, that they have to be married, they have to have the perfect children, they have to go to the right college, they just the perfection ideal. And it is something that does hold a lot of women back from wanting to run for office because they wake up and they're like, all right, did I get the right degree? Do I got the right job? Well, I just dumped old dude. I ain't getting married soon. Should I really run for this seat? So it is something that we do have to push back on because it is this narrative again, that if women are going to be in politics, only certain types of women should be in politics. And I hear people say all the time, we need to create a reflective democracy. But I say what we need to have is an inclusive democracy. And that means that we have to have women from all walks of life, backgrounds, ethnicities, races, religion, because that's the way you get real policy that impacts people's lives. When you have the people at the table who understand it. And as long as we keep this image of the ideal woman candidate, that is going to prevent a lot of women running for office. And if I could just add to that as well to underscore Shanti's point, which I think is spot on, we need diverse women at the table and with all kinds of life experiences helping to make these decisions. Otherwise, what we get are policies that support older white men, because <laughs> that has been who has been in control of our, our governing bodies across the country for the most part, right? And you know, and you look at a state like California, it's so diverse with you know ethnically diverse, socioeconomically diverse, you know, all of the above. And if we have diverse representation, we're going to have policies that reflect those communities. And so we have to push back on this and make sure that we have really inclusive representative democracy and that we're supporting women of all backgrounds um, in these experiences. Yeah, I think all of this is coming to light even more during the pandemic with distance learning for kids and lack of childcare and all of these issues that are kind of in the background all the time for working moms are just front and center Right now, um, Congresswoman Porter, you had a great op-ed in Jezebel today, um, which touched on a lot of these issues. Um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of women are dropping out of the workforce every month because they have nowhere to send their kids. And it doesn't seem like very many schools are opening anytime soon. Um, and if they are, then they're hybrid or, you know, they're not the full day, full schedule. Um, and do you think help is coming um, in Washington, D.C.? Are people understanding this? Um, are you hopeful or frustrated or <laughs> what's going to happen? Um, well, I'm definitely frustrated, um, but I do feel hopeful about the Biden-Harris um, plan on this point. I think this is one of the strongest points of their plan is when they talk about Build Back Better, when I first heard that slogan, I was like, oh, please, not another bridge, right? And there's nothing wrong with bridges and with roads, but there are lots of kinds of infrastructure that permit people to have mobility, um, not just to physically go from place to place, but to, to create opportunity. Um, and their plan on caregiving is really terrific. And it's a plan that both reflects the needs of people who are seeking care for their children or for elderly relatives, but also the incredible potential of the caregiving workforce and really recognizes and lifts up the work that they do, recognizing that a lot of that workforce is um, today black and brown women. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we see over and over again, and I think, you know, I, I struggle with this myself is, um, 
you know, I, I should have figured it out. I, I should have made a better plan. I should have anticipated that. Like maybe, you know, people will say to me things like, have you activated your support network? Um, have you tried a color-coded spreadsheet? Do you make and freeze meals in advance? I mean, nobody has ever asked Mitch McConnell if he makes and freezes meals in advance. And tied up in that is not just issues of womanhood, but also issues of class, right? Um, and so I'm really worried about where the pandemic is going to leave us in terms of women's roles in employment. Um, the numbers that we are seeing, 80% of people who dropped out of the workforce in September were women. And we already, even pre-pandemic, had seen that Black and Latino, Latino women were more likely to drop out of the workforce because of childcare problems. So we need to understand childcare and providing adequate infrastructure and support for childcare is not something we do for people who have children. It's something we do for all of us because our entire economy, our GDP, our global competitiveness rests on having women in the workforce and having working parents stay in the workforce um, or make their own choices about when to leave and when to come back. So I often get people who say to me, well, like you're a good, you're a good messenger for this issue because you know, you're a single mom and you have three children. Yes, but what's made me happiest in the House of Representatives, what's made me feel most optimistic is seeing some of my colleagues who are men with young children who have picked up this mantle and pushed on it. They, you know, and Buffy will remember, you know, the conversation Ian Calderon about he's leaving because he has a lot of children and young children and he wants to spend time with them. Um, you know, when we push to get, um, make it possible for women to be able to use campaign contributions at the federal level and now at the state level to pay for childcare, which you can use them to pay for wine and cheese cubes and other things. Um, some of the people who are taking advantage of that rule are people like Antonio Delgado and Joe Kennedy and their men. And that is really, really an important part of this story. What is your day looking like right now? I'm just wondering with three little kids and a huge job and a pandemic. Well, my latest day has been that my district is on fire. Um, and so the school that we managed to start despite COVID has now been canceled because of the fires. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the thing I, I try to tell myself is, um, it's not that work-life balance isn't some mythical scales of justice kind of thing. Work-life balance is like riding a bike. I'm just trying to stay on and continue pedaling. And it's okay to get off the bike and get some water. And it's okay to choose a little bit easier ride one day. Um, and that concept of work-life balance is more like riding a bike. I think it's really freed me from this feeling that I'm supposed to find this perfect in-between at all moments. Yeah. Katie, you need perfect harmony. Don't you know that? Didn't you not get that memo? <laughs> I got that memo, Buffy, and I tore it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I, a friend and I have been going on a motherhood journey together this year. Our kids were born like a week apart. And um, we've been talking about, you know, the work it takes to breastfeed your kid. I mean, the pumping and, and you know, obviously that got a little bit easier uh, with some of the requirements on insurance companies in Obamacare, which Buffy can probably talk uh, anyone's ear off. But it, she sent me some really interesting passages she was reading in a book about if you framed the conversation about breastfeeding, not as, you know, a choice, but as a right how different it would be if we weren't placing all the responsibility on individual moms. It's like, well, you can breastfeed if you can figure out, you know, your pumping schedule and, and instead said, no, this is something society is going to rally around that it should be 
you know, doable for every mom if, if they, you know, wanted to pursue that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I mentioned um, Assemblywoman Wicks, we wanted to, of course, mention the moment that, you know, set the internet ablaze when you had to bring your beautiful baby with you to the floor, you know, because she was a newborn and, and you can be separated. Just tell us a bit about that moment and, and what it's been like now in a, with a little bit of hindsight to see the reception that that moment brought. Sure. Yeah. So, and for those, and I think we actually have a picture of this if, if um, I'm not mistaken, as you speak. <laughs> yes. So it was uh, almost midnight on the floor of the assembly, the last day of session. And um, I had requested a proxy, but was denied because I was told maternity leave doesn't qualify. And I was sort of four weeks post cesarean, um, you know, and I was faced with this choice of, do I stay at home and not vote, you know, and we had expanded paid family leave. We had a addictions um, bill. We were trying to help our renters. We had a bunch of huge, important bills that were facing our constituents. And I thought I couldn't stay home. So what do I do? Do I go? Do I, you know, do I bring my daughter with me? So I decided to go and we decided ultimately, because I also have a three-year-old who I'm shocked she hasn't come in to say hi yet, which is always like, you know, she I hope she does. That would be fun. So I can make her appearance. Um, but do I leave both my kids here with my husband, but she's breastfeeding and it's, you know, four weeks we're breastfeeding every two to three hours. So I decided to bring her with me. Um, I stayed in my, my office most of the day. Cause I was nervous about being on the floor of the assembly with like a hundred people all day long. I didn't want to, you know, partake in what could have been a super spreader event. So I stayed in my office and I came down to deliver some remarks because the colleagues said, I really need some help on this bill. And I really believe in the bill. So I kind of just rushed down. I was feeding my daughter two floors up in my office and um, I just detached her from me and sort of ran down two flights of stairs, got up to the podium, delivered a very quick speech. My daughter starts crying. And it was one of these moments where like my mask was falling off and my daughter's crying and I'm trying to say what I need to say. And I'm like, okay, I gotta get out of here and feed my daughter. And it was, it was just a moment of, frankly, the reason why I, went, I think it went viral is every mother's been in that moment. You know, maybe not on the, the floor of the California assembly, but you're juggling, you're trying to make dinner, the phone's ringing, you know, one kid's beating the other kid up and you're just trying to deal with all these things. Or you're trying to decide, do I stay home and, or do I stay at my office and, you know, do this work and miss dinner or do I not? And who's going to pick up the kids or, you know, we're all dealing with that. And I think, especially right now, you know, where parents are confronted with, you have people who are health, health workers on the front lines who are having their kindergartners trying to do Zoom classes in the middle of the day. What do they do? You know, and what, what I think has happened is, we've shined a spotlight, COVID has shined a spotlight. And this hopefully is the gift that comes out of this on the fact that our public policy, policies have failed working families across this country, especially low-income families, disproportionately impacting families of color, you know, and we have to, I think, aspire to a better vision of what our policies are to help working families. And I think that's why that moment went viral was because everyone is feeling that across the board right now, um, across this country and, and what COVID has done. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, I think it's provided an opportunity to continue that conversation. And I will say, I think, and it hasn't been talked about much in the press, but I actually think this issue around caregiving that Katie mentioned, I think that's the, that, that could be a sleeper issue this cycle. That it's not, pollsters aren't talking about it that much. You know, it's not coming up really in the debates. And it's hard for Biden to bring it up because Trump is driving the narrative with all of this crazy talk all the time. But the issue around caregiving and what parents are feeling across this country with COVID, I think is one of the most important issues that voters are going to vote on. And I think when they then look at who, which candidate is, is really kind of going to help them out, 
you know, obviously I think Biden is that candidate, you know, I think Kamala is that candidate, but I actually think this is a sleeper issue this cycle that could be a a definitive part of the reason why we win uh, next week. I'm hearing a lot of um, male employers freaking out because so many of their women staffers are saying they're going to have to quit if this goes on much longer and schools don't open. And it's really becoming a systemic issue, not just family by family, but you know, that's exactly right. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. And your job is to encourage women to run for office, but then they're dealing with all these issues we just talked about um, that maybe men don't feel as personally, not to stereotype all men, but some men don't feel as personally responsible um, for may not hold them back for running for political office as much as it would women. So how do you encourage them to take this on because they can help change these policies, but first they have to, you know, deal with their own family situations. Yeah. So I think I have three things here. The first is something that we're not talking about is at Emerge, we have 800 of our alums running this year, but we anticipated a thousand, but several of the women did not run because they had to homeschool their kids. So that became a priority or they were the caregivers who were also taking care of parents or other family members. So they had to focus on that or because members of their family lost their job, they became the primary breadwinner. So COVID has even impacted women when it comes to wanting to run for office because they have to take on all those burdens. Congresswoman Berger talked about using campaign funds for childcare. That is something so many of our Emerge alums have championed, particularly at the local level. And that goes to the fact that even when women are running for office, they're trailblazing. They're making sure that they can level the playing field. And what we saw in so many states is the commissions or the boards or whoever was in charge of it, they would approve childcare campaign funds for men, but not for women. So even there, we saw the sexism at play, that it was different for women when they needed to get a babysitter so they could attend a fundraiser but it was fine for the man to use his child care funds to get the babysitter for a fundraiser. And how do we solve this? We have to have more women in these positions of power. In Maine, when we had two of our Emerge alums, Sarah Gideon and Aaron Herbert running things, was one of the first things that they did. They created a breastfeeding room because they had young children. There were lobbyists that were women who had young children it's another way that we make the conversation different and we think differently by making things more accessible. When we talk about politics in general, we were not supposed to be playing in politics. Politics was built for white land-owning men. So when we're in this institution, of course they never thought about, oh, women will need to bring their child to the floor. Oh, they'll need to step away to breastfeed. The only way to change all of this is we have to have the women in charge making these decisions and running for office with young children. It can be a barrier for so many women, but because women know how to overcome, that's why we do see so many more women running for office. And tell earlier that photo you were talking about with a woman who had her young kid playing under her, that was Emerge alum Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger when she was giving her election night speech Her daughter didn't care. She's like, I'm just here to have fun. You're going to be a congresswoman now. Fabulous. I'm going to play. But we hear from so many of our emerging alums that that still inspires them to run because the fact that she was able to do it with young children, let them know that they were able to do it too. So these images, these pictures, what she showed of Assemblywoman Wicks, we need those images 
because that continues to encourage women to run for office, no matter what their family situation is. Yeah, apologies to Congresswoman Spanberger for blanking on, on the credit on that one. But yeah, you know, I mean, I'm reminded of, you know, during my time in Washington, the talk of, of adding women's restrooms to, to being just off the floor of, of the, the Senate and the House, because there are now enough women that they need, you know, that access. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how slow that institution was to change and, and how quickly that change can also come. Uh, speaking of, you know, the women in Washington, I want to switch gears a little bit. I feel like we could talk about this all night, but um, one of the really interesting things about San Francisco and the Bay Area in particular is just how many powerful women have come from it. And you think about it, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, Kamala Harris, Barbara Lee, just to name a few of them. Uh, but they're also, you know, Pelosi and Feinstein are in their 80s. Uh, Lee and others are in their 70s. They're not going to hold these offices forever. So we wanted to talk a little bit about what the future of women in politics from the Bay Area might look like. You know, Ashanti, I, I believe you guys have a pipeline of alums and, and members who might be in there if you want to sort of talk about what you see the future of, of women in politics in this area looking like. Yeah, so our first Emerge affiliate was Emerge California in 2002, and it was formed in the Bay Area. And almost 20 years later, we see that pipeline. Senator Harris, several of our co-founders got involved with her first DA race, and that inspired them to start Emerge. Senator Harris told Mayor London Breed to take the program. Mayor London Breed told Malia Cohen to take the program. We also have Latifa Simon on part board. We have the Oakland Mayor, Libby Shave. We have over 100 Emerge alums who are on the California ballot this year. How did we get there is making sure you're doing that investment. It just really doesn't happen overnight. We know there are some women who self-select and just say, I'm going to do this. But there are the other women who do need that encouragement. They need that friend to say, have you thought about running for this seat? Have you thought about this appointment to a commission or a board? When you make the investment, it starts to pay off. And that's what we're seeing in the Bay Area and across California is making sure that there are women to pass the torch to. And also as these women are getting elected to office, advancing a higher office, we see them lifting as they climb. And that is so important as well, bringing women along with you. We have Emerge alums when they ascend to higher office, they reach back and they recruit Emerge alum to run for their seat. They are hiring women on their campaign staff. They're hiring women in their office. So it's an entire ecosystem that we're creating. And that's how you're able to have just an awesome pool of women to pull from. And I'm excited to see what Emerge alums and women in the Bay Area in general do over the next few years. And Assemblywoman Wicks, uh, why do you think the Bay Area has been such a hotbed of uh, women political talent? And do you have your eye on any up and comers? 
Sure. I mean, I think in part to what Shani said is Emerge, you know, has created an entire pipeline of really talented women here. And there's been that investment that I think is critical. I also think, you know, Barry politics, it's a super engaged political community. Um, and it's there's a high level of political competition, if you will. And so I think what comes out of these very contentious races is really smart, talented candidates who, you know, have built this big base. They build a big grassroots base. They build a big finance base. They've, you know, they've dealt with a lot of the, um, you know, how to be a better candidate, how to hone your message, how to tell your story, um, because it's pretty hyper competitive here. So I think that's part of the reason why we're producing, the, you know, people like Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris and these like Barbara Lee and these like true real, you know, leaders in the state and in the, in the nation. Um, so in that sense, I think it's kind of a it's a hotbed. You know, we still have a long way to go. You know, in California, we haven't had a female governor. You know, I mean, there's still those glass ceilings that we need to, you know, recognize and, and address and deal with. Um, but I do think it's from these investments. And I will say some of the folks that I'm supporting and I'm all in on them is Latifa Simon, who was mentioned, you know, she, she I want Latifa to run for president one day. She is so smart and so talented um, and so great. And she's on the BART board now, but she's, you know, hopefully going to win reelection this this cycle and then serve in that role for as long as she wants to, but there, the, the sky's the limit for her. Um, Steph Walton, who is running for um, city council here in Oakland in my district, if she wins, she'd be the first Latina ever elected on the Oakland city council. Um, and so there's some really, and she's an Emerge alum as well. Um, and so some really strong, talented women here that are running that, and I do think it's important also for women to help other women. I'm supporting almost exclusively women this cycle. No offense to the guys. I'm supporting some guys, but you know, I'm, I'm really all in um, on, on the, a lot of the women candidates, um, both in my area and other parts of the state and the country. And I think that's really, really important. And, and Congresswoman Porter, we haven't forgotten that you're, <laughs> you're representing Southern California. You know, it is interesting. Most, if not all of the statewide positions often go to candidates from the Northern part of the state. And I'm curious if you, sort of have a, a suspicion as to why that is and, and how much you think that might change going forward to see more of Southern California represented uh, at the top levels of the state politics? Well, the political sort of the pundit answer here is that there actually are more people in the Northern part of the state when you actually look at it. Um, and people focus on the size of Los Angeles, but there actually are just more people in the Northern part of the state. There are some um, amazing women leaders here. I mean, Tony Atkins, um, Lorena Gonzalez, um, and I think it's interesting to see, you know, Buffy talked about kind of the hyper-competitiveness, the dem-on-dem um, nature of San Francisco. It's, you know, taking on a Republican, um, having to go through a, a brutal primary and then do it all again um, to get over the finish line, like we have to in areas like Range County is really daunting um, for a lot of women. So, um, you know, I think it's exciting to see um, women at different levels of government. I think that's one of the things that excites me the most um, is seeing women step up and run. I think sometimes, you know, with, with you know, then Boxer, Feinstein, Harris, we're looking at this at the Senate and we're saying, we in California are so, it's, you know, so many, so many women, one of my mm -hmm. least favorite phrases, um, so many women. But the reality is the number of women in the assembly and the Senate it's not at parity. Um, the number of women in the California congressional delegation, women are 30%. That is a long ways from 50. Um, the percentage of women in Congress is 25, half, half of what representation would look like. So but I thought one of the most interesting things when I was elected in 2018 was so many wonderful stories. The New York Times put out a you know, beautiful book about it, about the faces of the women who are representing America. Um, but people kept saying, like, what's it like to serve with so 
many women. And I, I, at first I was like, oh, it's so great. And then after like a week or so, I was like, what are you even talking about? Like I serve with half as many women as I should, right? And that's about to take away from the incredible talent, the uniqueness, the fresh energy, the new voices, the diversity of those women. But I think it's also important to, to not confuse kind of amazing leaders at the top, people who've achieved incredible power and people with incredible accomplishment, whether it's Kamala or Nancy Pelosi, with the kind of really embedded um, representation at every part in, of government that I think emerges helped create, for example, women running for city council, women then getting appointed to state boards. Um, that, that ecosystem, which I think really is the right word to use for it, um, you can't, you know, one woman or two women at the top don't make up for that kind of rep deep representation that I think we're still striving for. Right. Well, now we have some questions from our audience. Um, first one is, how do you hold on to your hearts when you're around the ugliness that currently permeates politics? And how do you stay sane during this crazy time? Um, Ashanti, do you want to take that one first? It will. For me, I just always center my why why I wake up and do this work every day, why I love politics. And that's what, that is really what gets me through, especially during this time. It brings me joy that I get to wake up and just see so many women defy the odds and run for office. I am excited for election day to see alums get reelected, to see new women take office. We're putting together the video for our 15-year anniversary of Emerge America, the national organization. And I was watching the clips earlier and just see these women win their races and just the shock on their faces, but the excitement and seeing people just grab onto them, but also knowing all the hard work that they put into it. When you keep that centered, that's really important because doing this work is not always sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops, as I like to say. At least a couple of times a month, I get an email from a man who tells me that we are doing this all wrong and we need to be training women to run for office from a man's perspective if we want for them to win. I'm like, how do you even find my email address? And wh <laughs> why, why is this in my inbox? Why is this in my inbox? You have to know your why for those moments, for the ugliness, for the men who think they know better than you. That is what keeps me going. Yeah. Assemblywoman Wicks, what keeps you going and prevents you from going crazy right now? Yeah, I'm, you know, a couple things. I think, you know, I try to stay grounded in in my community and my constituents and what, what's happening in their lives every day. You know, I, I get an email in my inbox every night of, all the calls that have come in, all the emails that have come in and seeing what people are experiencing in our communities. Um, that is very motivational to me, knowing what is happening in our communities, how government is failing people, how our federal government in particular, the, the, the Trump administration is failing people. What can we do at the state level to help create that social safety net? And to be a part of that process is incredibly empowering. And I feel honestly really privileged to be able to, to do that work. Um, but staying connected to people's stories and their life experiences, I think is critical as a, as a lawmaker because it's so easy to get caught up in 
the fundraisers and the politics and the press and the social media and all this stuff. And you have to stay focused on the work and you have to stay focused on the policy and the why as to what, as, as, as Ashanti said, why you are here and do the work that you do is really, really important because this stuff can get to elected heads, I think pretty easily, you know, and it's important not to kind of, I think, believe all your own hype and all this sort of stuff that happens out there, but to keep grounded and stay focused on the people that you are here to serve is very, very important. And to me, that's what keeps me motivated. And then also I try to do Peloton on the side to kind of get a good workout and to sort of get some of my, my anger out when I get frustrated. So, so there's that. Handle it in a productive way. And how about you, Congresswoman Porter? Well, you know, a lot of people during this pandemic, particularly at the beginning, um, you know, maybe week two, week three, we started hearing, you know, I've learned how to bake bread and I'm suddenly taking the time to meditate. And my job was exploding um, because we were really big problems being caused by the administration's handling of this crisis on top of all the rules that Congress has. Um, and then being home with my three kids who, you know, where school was shut down. Um, and so my pandemic project um, has been to form a leadership organization called Truth to Power to help support other challengers. Um, and, you know, I often have have regretted, like so many times in my primary, I was like, I wish I'd done a merge, right? Um, but I just, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was going to be in this moment until I was, right? And that happens um, to people. And so I've been focusing a lot on supporting. I've endorsed 26 House challengers. Um, and, you know, I think there's so much attention on the presidential and on the Senate um, that we aren't really seeing maybe full, as fully as we should what an amazingly talented group of people are running for the House this cycle. So I've endorsed 26 women, um, people of color, women of color. Um, none of them take corporate PAC money. These are really, really dynamic, energized candidates who are going to not only get us to 50%, but they're going to get us to that vibrant, full representation of women's life experiences. And I love this question um, that we just got from someone who's watching who says they have no background in politics. She says she's 23, admires all of you, has so much passion, and wants to know what recommendation you have to, to go ahead and get started. Um, let's start with um, Assemblywoman Wicks this time. Yeah, I, mean, I think the most important thing is figure out what are the issues you care about and find a candidate you can help, find an organization you can work with. You got to jump in there and, you know, roll up your sleeves. The thing I do love about campaigns is, you know, campaigns don't care what school you went to, if you come from money, any of that stuff. It's do you want to put your heart and soul into the work, you know, and 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 that really, I think, speaks to to, to what a campaign is. Um, so I, I and it's a little different this time around because of COVID and they're taking different forms and different shapes. But. I think getting involved is the most important thing. I think showing up and talking to your local elected officials about the issues you care about, you know, you should call people like me, people like Katie, people that represent you and say, this is what I think, this is what I believe. You know, developing those relationships, I think is, is really important at the, at the local, state and federal level is important. But jumping in and getting involved on it, whether it's, you know, choice issues, the environment, um, preventing gun violence, there's a lot of great candidates out there working on those issues and elected officials working on those issues. There's also a lot of great organizations. So getting plugged in with something like that, rolling up your sleeves and doing the work is the first thing you can do to, to jump in and help out. Congresswoman. I also think there's no, there's no magic time. There's no, it's not like it's ever convenient 
to upend your entire professional and personal life and put yourself out there as a candidate. It's something that you decide to do um, and there's no perfect path. There's no one right way to do it. Um, I do think the value of doing a program like Emerge um, is getting to learn more about what the opportunities are and to also build the sisterhood, the classes of Emerge graduates and how they support themselves. So I think doing a program like that, but one of the things I like about Emerge is it isn't like, You've done the program and now you must run the very next cycle. There's an understanding that people will find their own paths um, to when they want to run. Maybe they want to get involved in other ways. Um, I've had, you know, I have my second consecutive campaign here and it's the second consecutive campaign in which we have all women, um, women field director, women campaign manager, women finance director. That whole group of talent is also a place to go. So I would just say that there's, there's no magic thing you have to do, but it's about nurturing kind of in yourself a sense of strength, a sense of confidence, and a sense that what you have to say and the way that you can make a difference matters. And hang on to that, and then the, the right moment to run will come. And Ashanti, you know, this is, this is what you do. So I wanted to come to you, to you as well. I love this question, and for me, I did not come from a political family at all. You know, they voted, but they were really into politics until like 08 when Obama ran. And then I was like, geez, leave me alone. You guys are like just bugging me all the time about the presidential election. But I got involved in high school volunteering. I'm a co-founder of Emerge Nevada. And if you would have told me that when I sat around a conference room table one day with other women and we decided that we wanted to change the face of politics in Nevada, that I would be the president of the national organization, never ever occurred to me. So know that there absolutely is a path for you and you will find it. That can be as the candidate, that can be as a campaign staffer, that can be as the rock star volunteer activist. You will figure it out. And being 23, you have time to just really test it all and see what works for you. Do you like the fundraising side of things? Do you like the communication side of things? I'm a field girl at heart. I love the political director side of things. There's lots of things you can try. And I do think given right now with so many things being virtual, you can start to attend Democratic Party meetings virtually, text banking for campaigns. And after election day, there's still going to be a lot to do. Election day is not the end all be all. So don't think that, oh my gosh, election day is in a week. I'm not going to have things to do. Child, there's so many things that you can still do. And one of the other things that I do is the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. And we have a resources page. And you can go there. We have a list of organizations that you can start to reach out to and see if you connect with any of them. And that can be your path to starting your political career. Great. I think we have time for one more question. Um, I am a woman who gave up her business in order to support my family during this pandemic. What will Congress and the California Assembly do to support working families once the election is over? Is there the political will to support working families? Congresswoman Porter, you want to take that one? Absolutely. Um, this is such an important question. And I, I mentioned that when we talk about how we rebuild our economy, how we get things going. Um, first and foremost, of course, is electing people who believe in science, who believe in research, and who will help us control that 
um, the virus, work toward a safe and effective vaccine. It's distributed in an equitable um, way. I think when we talk about the economy, you know, I mentioned before this idea of kind of um, when it comes time to restart the economy, or we're trying to jumpstart the economy, infrastructure and kind of working, building projects always come to the fore. And they're really, really important. Our nation has a huge deficit in infrastructure. But one of the things we don't talk about is despite wonderful organizations like women in the building trades and paths like that, a lot of those jobs are held by men. Um, and so one of the things we have to think about is how are we going to help women re-enter the workforce, whether it's starting their own business or working as employees. And that means investing in childhood. Um, so one of the planks of the Biden-Harris um, Build Back Better plan would have universal preschool for three and four-year-olds. And not every parent may choose to take advantage of that, but having that choice would really be a huge help to families, to their bottom lines, um, and to be able to provide more care. We also have to start investing in childcare as infrastructure. Um, and every other westernized nation and many, frankly, emerging economies do this. Um, we have a tendency in the United States, and I think this is like really a dominant thing in the halls of Congress, to think we know it all. We don't. There are a lot of global models for us to look to that have made a lot more strides toward keeping and retaining women in the workforce and helping families make ends meet. Um, and so that means things like raising the minimum wage. It means things like a strong labor movement. It means things like bringing down the sticker price of college um, so that a student can work in the summers and be able to get, you know, pay their tuition um, in the school year. So you're absolutely right to keep pushing on this. And my strongest advice to you is keep making your voice heard. Um, you know, what they said about, what Ashanti said about the work continues after election day, you bet it does. Um, because this administration is gonna do exactly what we push them to do. And the same thing is true about the California legislature. They're gonna do what we push them to do. So you have to keep making your voice heard, keep speaking up and fighting for what you need, making sure that your representatives hear your story. And Assemblywoman Wicks? Sure, I'm, uh, Katie hit on, uh, I think, the big policy points that I think we all, uh, at least I, I certainly believe in as well. You know, I think I get this question a lot, you know, when are we going to go back to normal? And what I say is normal was not working for so many people. I don't want to go back to, in Oakland, we had a 47% increase in homelessness in the last two years. That's not okay. I don't want to go back to women making less than men. You know, I don't want to go back to failed policies that don't help working families. You know, what we need to do is aspire to something bigger and better and bolder and more progressive that actually cares for our working class families, you know, and that's why we need things like, you know, paid leave and paid leave that goes to 100%, not 55%, right? You know, and 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 things like early childhood, which, which Katie hit on, I think is is so key. So these are some of the issues that I think we have to grapple with. We have to have better policies. Right now it's cheaper in 33 states to send your child to university than it is to afford early childhood care. And we wonder why women are coming out of the workforce, you know, and, and COVID has exposed it more so. That was already happening before, it's happening more now, but we have to aspire something bigger, which means uh, electing federal leadership that cares about this. Um, certainly, obviously in the White House, also in the Senate, God willing, we take back the Senate as well. We can actually put forth policies that help people, but also pushing your state leaders on this stuff is important. You know, in California, the challenge is we can't go into debt. We're not allowed to here constitutionally. So we're going to rely on the federal government. But we also have to look in, in California. Are there other ways to get revenue, creative ways we can get revenue to support these types of policies? So those are some of the things I think we need to we need to tackle and, and challenge. And, you know, I look forward to working with our federal partners to do exactly that. And Ashanti will give you the final word. Anything you want to add? 
everything the Congresswoman and Assemblywoman said. You found me over here with my snaps. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us. It was great to see you and talk to you, and we really appreciate you participating. And to all the viewers, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to visit sfchronicle.com slash election events to join the last Road to Election 2020 with former Governor Jerry Brown. Um, you can also check out our complete voter guide at sfchronicle.com slash vote. And remember on Tuesday or before to vote, stay calm, and keep going. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you to Tal Copen, Katie Porter, Buffy Wicks, and Ashanti Golar for participating in this event. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening.